0: you could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash-out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 833-8ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current as a 12, 12 Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. And consumer access. Not over 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information. With great mojo comes great responsibility. Mojo five zero. Mojo 5.
1: We will make 5-0. America now great again.
2: Sam Sorbo.
1: And welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show here on mojo50.com every day at 10 a.m. Eastern. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk today about some Corona meltdowns. I intimated this uh, yesterday on yesterday's show. The repercussions of all of this. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun as well. There's some funny memes that are going around. We'll talk about that. Try to lighten lighten the air a little bit. And uh, and before I get into all of that stuff, we're going to talk with my guest Todd Robinson, who's the director and writer for a really great movie called The Last Full Measure. It's streaming now on um, on all the different platforms, uh, it comes to us from Lionsgate. Todd Robinson is an American film producer, sc- uh, film director, screenwriter and producer. And he also wrote and, d- and produced White Squall for director Ridley Scott, which starred Jeff Bridges and plenty of other people. But he's here to talk to us about The Last Full Measure. Welcome to the program.
2: Good morning. Hi, Sam.
1: So, uh, explain for our view, our our viewers, our listeners, right now what what is the last full measure? What are we talking about?
2: Well, it's a, it's this true story of William Hart Pitzenbarger and his uh, story of heroism and valor during the Vietnam War, where he descended into one of the bloodiest firefights as a, as an Air Force pararescue man and saved over sixty lives, and then the parallel story of how the veterans that he saved uh, some 30 years later got together and petitioned Congress uh, to be sure that he was recognized with the medal of honor.
1: Now by pararescue, he's a medic, but he's a medic he's who a medic. jumps out uh, of planes. He's medic
2: on, yeah. He's a medic on steroids. Uh, <laughs> these guys are considered, uh, uh, you know, operators, um, special operators. They, they run at that level. And, um, and uh, they have a, a unique set of skills that uh, include not only their medical backgrounds, but also uh, being able to infiltrate and fight their way in and out to uh, save patients.
1: Right. And you wrote the screenplay for this as well, right?
2: I did. Yes.
1: So so talk to me about how you came across the story and, and what what compelled you. This let, let's just say this. Uh, I don't know what your funding is, but I. Um, it's it's not like one of these great big Hollywood epic uh, uh, projects that everybody's heard about. Am I am I correct in in saying that, or have I been living under a rock?
2: Uh, no, it's a, it has a tremendous cast, of course, uh, who are all attracted to the story and the material. But the the film was an independent film, right, uh, with a modest budget and. Um,
1: yeah. Right. And you managed to get a, a really a phenomenal cast, I have to say. And and by the way, folks, I I really enjoyed the movie. Well, my whole family watched it and we really enjoyed it. Uh and it it's uh so okay, so so take me back. Uh Pits and Burger. What Yeah. Like the the name itself is so un uh unassuming and you know, you wouldn't go, uh, that sounds like an American hero. <laughs> like
2: <laughs> yeah he was a native son of uh of ohio and his uh father had been a veteran and he uh enlisted in the army because he really wanted to serve others and uh, sorry so the air force
1: how did you find uh, how did you find the story yeah,
2: so i was um i had been approached by uh, uh another hollywood director wolfgang peterson who uh, had just completed making the perfect storm, yeah. and one of the storylines in that movie uh, are the guys in the helicopter that go down into the sea, and among them were pararescuemen. So he became acquainted with that that work detail, and and uh, optioned a book about it, and I was going around the country. Basically, doing my research to to make another movie about pararescue. And every place I went, the young airman wanted to make sure that I knew the story of Pitsenbarger because he really is their patron saint. And at a, a certain point along the way, I was able to meet Mr. Pitsenbarger, Pits's father. And I was just, you know, really moved by his story of loss. Uh, and the story of his son's sacrifice and valor, and then I became really engaged with the veterans uh of that battle sure. and realized sure. that uh that they were so dedicated to getting this before congress and this was all the way back in nineteen ninety nine and it uh it became a twenty year passion of mine to get the film made
1: the um The story itself okay who who plays his father again?
2: Ah, uh, Christopher Plummer. Right, does it ubiquitous. does?
1: Yeah, does does an astonishing, just an amazing job. Every everybody in the movie is really quite quite amazing in their in their roles, the way they're cast. Henry is it Henry Fonda's in it? Not Henry. Uh, Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda.
2: Fonda. <laughs> they look uh, alike. <laughs> Brad, yeah, Bradley Whitford, William Hurt, Ed Harris, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Sebastian Stan. Sam, yeah, I Sam. Mean, Jackson, it goes yeah. on and on. Yeah. It's, a, it's a who's who murderers row. Yeah. Rope. yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and, um, so you, so in your research to do a story about the paramilitary, basically, uh, you, Para-rescu- para-rescuers, uh, you, you said this story should be told and, and it ends well in the sense that he's given the honor that he is due, but that was hard fought. Why, why was it so hard to get him honored? He, he was so notably a hero.
2: Yeah, I think it's two things. One uh, was the fog of war. Um, you know, when, when our nation is fighting wars, uh, the, the first thing on their mind uh, is not always decorations, uh, it, it, in spite of the fact that they do serve a purpose. Um, and the other thing is uh, it, it, it appears, and the, the veterans will tell you, that at that time it was considered the bloodiest battle of the war, and it was really kind of a screw-up. Uh, by the uh, by, the American military community, um, and they it went all the way up the chain. It was submitted back in 1966 as a Medal of Honor uh, package, and it went all the way up the chain through McNamara to Johnson, and was kicked back down as an Air Force Cross. and And a second Medal of Honor was given. Uh, and received for that uh, battle by one of the uh, army officers and so it was believed that it was going to shine too much of a light on what was really uh, an american failure at that time and so it was uh, sort of kicked under the rug
1: right they they didn't want to they didn't want to acknowledge the failure that resulted in the the heroic the the potential for heroism basically he, he wouldn't Correct. have he wouldn't have been required to uh how do you put it he wouldn't have had the opportunity to shine so heroic if it hadn't been such a cluster
2: yeah exactly
1: exactly and and yet he did and so the so the first thing that i would say to the audience here because i would love for them to see this movie um because because the way you you depicted the veterans they're not um they're not all whole people they, they're all struggling with their own demons But you don't. um, But you handle that delicately. That's not like a a point of the movie. It's. It's not. uh, It just is. It just is part of their characters at this point. In fact, one of the characters who's a vet who who strongly believes that he deserves the Medal of Honor uh, looks at the the who I who I picture is is playing you in the movie. Basically, the guy who's doing the research to say, Hey, maybe we should. You know what are your thoughts on awarding the medal of honor um and uh this guy fonda is like you know th- th- threatens you to run away threatens you to go away with a gun like he doesn't want to talk to you at all and yet he
2: well very very cagey of you to notice that um that actually uh a lot of the conversations uh, a lot of the dialogue in the film were, were taking from my notes and that that character that Peter Fonda plays was based on a conversation that I had with one of the veterans who kept calling me, sir. And I finally had to say to him, you know what? I'm just a Hollywood pack, man. You don't (laughs) (laughs) don't have to call me, sir. You know, I'm just a guy. And he kept calling me, sir. And I realized later that it was really a put down because he was, uh, what he was really doing was he viewed me as the man yeah you know some guy from somewhere else it was like an officer to him right and he didn't trust people like that and uh and in the end when when everything had come together you know he he and others came to my partners and i and you know with great gratitude um you know thanked us and and invited us into their brotherhood um because we had stayed the course for so long. And so um, there were lots of really wonderful, subtle moments like that, where um, where I did really have a, a personal uh, interaction with these guys that made its way into the storytelling.
1: Now, can you, because uh, the one thing that I'm not clear of, did the movie play any part in him getting awarded the Medal of Honor, or does it tell the story of the fact that he had, he, he had gotten the Medal of Honor?
2: The latter, Okay um, he was actually when I came upon the story back in ninety nine um it was just about to go before Congress, and by two thousand and 2001, I believe he was finally or finally received the Medal of Honor. And so uh, I was just coming into the story while it was uh, coming to completion. Right. And so he he did receive the 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 medal back in uh, almost 20 years ago.
1: Right. And and so as you're doing the research for the movie, of course, you're you're coming across these people again. Um, it's, it's really remarkable. I just I really commend you. You've done uh, an, uh, just a, a wonderful film that tells just a piece of the story. Um, I would say that the that the uh, battle scenes are I'm, I'm really sensitive. I can't watch violence. I didn't have a problem with it. Um, the, the battle scenes are. Um, how do you put it there? I mean, there's violence, but you can you can blink enough to get through it, at least for me. Uh, and and still enjoy the movie uh, because they're because the whole movie doesn't revolve around that battle, but you do need that battle to set up the the abject heroism of this individual, and he has plenty of opportunities to not stay on the ground, and that's the that's the main thing, right? He had plenty of opportunities to leave, and he was like, "No, I'm clearly needed here, so I'll stay here," and that's how he sacrificed his life.
2: That's correct, and it it. it... <laughs> It's interesting in this moment of of uh, COVID nineteen and the coronavirus that we see a, a, a very direct parallel, which is the fact that people like these that, that like Pitts the thing that makes them special is that they're the people that are running into the burning building. And when you when you look at uh, our medical community and our first responders right now, many of whom I I know in my own personal life, it is just remarkable that. Uh, at risk of uh, you know engaging with this this virus themselves with their families at home, um, these people continue to go to work every day, uh, just like Pitzenbarger went down that wire and refused to leave men he did not know. These were strangers to him, these were people from a different culture than his own, and yet he stayed and there 's a beautiful line in the movie that also i again I took he actually said this to one of the the men on the ground who asked him, "Why are you here?" And he said, "I'm here because you're here." And that's the way. That was the Sam uh,
1: Jackson character, right?
2: Correct. Yeah. He asked the question, right? And uh, and it was a very you know I- I- improvised answer. I mean, it was it was um, it was a reactive answer, and yet that really is what drives these people. Uh, and we're seeing it. Uh, there there is beauty in the chaos around us, and it's these people that are willing to lay their own lives on the line for people that they don't even know.
1: A tremendous cost. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's an amazing thing. But of course uh, Jesus said, no, no love, no greater love hath man than this that he laid down his life for a friend. And that, that is sort of the expression of our military is, is we are willing to lay down the, the military is willing to lay down uh, its life in order to preserve freedom, which is, a phenomenal statement. Well,
2: the, para, the pararescue rescue uh, credo is these things we do that others may live, and they live by that. In right. fact, they, they all will always sign uh, living by the motto um, because they truly believe that right. they're trained for it. But it also takes special people to uh, embody that kind of commitment.
1: So, so in a sense, um, the military redeemed itself when when it finally awarded him his. Posthumously, I right uh, awarded the Medal of Honor to his parents.
2: Yes, I, I mean I think so, and, and this is not this isn't by this does not set out to criticize the military uh, in any way. What if it, 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 there's a criticism here? It's that war is really a a really bad answer to conflict resolution, uh, and the Vietnam War in particular uh, is is a cautionary tale about. Um, what happens when when politics and policy are are you know mixed right. together, blended blended together? And um, uh, you know I'm not a smart enough guy to to be able to really comment on the politics of that time. Uh, I was just taking a very personal story, a, a, a story about fathers and sons and mothers, and and and, and, and sort of con- congeal it so that we can all experience it in a personal way. Uh, put ourselves in, in that situation and, and asking questions like, what would I do if right. my child wanted to go to war? Right. And uh, and in the end, he made all of them proud, and he made the, the, the people that he saved proud. Right. Uh, to the point that uh, they spent a greater part of their lives making sure that he was acknowledged. Right. So and, and- that really...
1: Says a lot. As you're describing it, I'm getting goosebumps again. Um, the, the film does a, such a remarkable job of bringing in other characters. It's not a military film. It's a film about humanity uh, and bringing in the other characters. And so you have so many different characters that the audience can identify with. So you don't have to be a hoorah guy to, to watch the film. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a civilian film about, um, about a family that's involved in military stuff
2: uh yeah it's a home front film yeah. and it's also about the reason it's so uplifting at the end spoiler alert is that <laughs> uh, it, it really does uh reflect the legacy of what one person can do yeah uh in, yeah. in, in it, without even knowing what they're doing and the idea of service greater than self is the theme that i hope people take away it's the thing that i learned for myself that, you know, even as a, and I teach uh, among other things, and you never know uh, if you plant the seed in one person, how that might uh, play out years and years from now, when those concentric rings from the proverbial pebble in the pond, you play out. And it, it just so happens that because so much time passed between his sacrifice and when it was acknowledged, we're able to literally see the generations of people that were affected by this seeming, you know, random act of kindness.
1: Right. Well, not so random, right? But still, yeah. Uh, Have you, have have people likened it to Hacksaw Ridge?
2: Mm. Yes. uh, There have been lots of comparisons. Um, I actually uh, met Mel Gibson. He was uh, trying to make his way into the movie, but his schedule prohibited it. Uh, at one point. Um, but but yeah, you know, I, I mean, there are similarities. Obviously, they're both medics and uh, both in dire uh, circumstances. Um, th- this is a little, um, you know, less directly aimed uh, at, at a man with a, a, a deep uh, religious uh, commitment. Right. Um, but uh, I, I think in some ways, maybe it makes it slightly more accessible.
1: And the outcome is different, obviously as well, but there are, there are some comparisons, so I would put it, and I definitely would put it in the in the in the caliber of film so thank you so much for making the movie uh Tell us well, again where can people me- go find it well, the last full measure dot com
2: sure you can google it and it'll pop up, but it right now it can be found on on the usual places like itunes and uh, Amazon Prime, and it'll it'll be out in, in uh, retail uh, establishments uh, in terms of the Blu-ray, the physical uh, film uh, like Walmart and, uh, you know, all those kind of places. It, it'll be everywhere.
1: Right. This is a film you might want for your collection, actually. So thank you so much for coming on the program and chatting with us. I appreciate it. Todd Robinson.
2: Appreciate it, Dan. All thank right. Thank you so much.
1: Take care. Okay. So, wow. Um Watson Prunier should be coming on the program any minute now. We'll see if I can manage the phones uh, well enough to get him on. Uh, Before he comes on, in case you want to uh, protect yourselves against a coming onslaught, My Patriot Supply thinks this is the perfect time to be talking about emergency food rations. Why do they call them rations? How about just emergency food? Maybe it's just me that's calling them rations because I feel like uh, it just applies. It doesn't necessarily apply. Uh, This isn't rations. This is real food. Freshest ingredients. They're freeze-dried, full meals, freeze-dried, sealed airtight, oxygen absorbers, in resealable, heavy-duty, four-layer zipper packs. Zipper packs. They last 25 years. Nothing's getting into these. That's you know... You can you can you can have confidence, and it's so inexpensive because they've got a promotion running right now at PrepareWithMojo50.com. So the price is slashed by a hundred dollars with free shipping thrown in for free. Go to PrepareWithMojo50.com. PrepareWithMojo50.com. Also coming on the show next week, Rocky Stucci. Who, uh, who broadcasts Monday through Friday, Friday at 12 a.m. Eastern, midnight, Eastern time. But that's 9 o'clock on the West Coast for you guys, so you can handle that. Uh, I, I, miss, I, I misrepresented him, and I, for that I'll apologize in person maybe. Uh, you can score a limited edition shirt to identify yourself as being part of the Meatball Army. And just so you know, this, the artwork that's on the shirt is going bye-bye after this promotion is over. So it is a limited edition T-shirt. When April is over, the shirts are gone. Uh, They're telling me a donation of 25 bucks or more will get you that collector's item shirt. The donation itself, of course, is tax deductible. Go to mojo50.com, select the donut button. Select the donate button. They should make it a donut, though. It would make it more attractive. Donut now. Yes, please. Oh, shoot, he got me. I'm sorry. I'm having fun. Uh, Let's talk about Corona meltdowns. This is up on American greatness. And uh, Victor Davis Hanson is a favorite of mine. He's just brilliant. So it's fun. Um, And I don't I don't have enough time to to read everything that I wish I read. By the way, have you been listening to Bill Whittle's um, The Cold War? What we saw? It's just an amazing podcast. My son, 18 years old, swears by it. He just thinks it. he's, he's finished it already. He just thinks it's fantastic. And it is. So I highly recommend it, uh, especially for your kids. Been talking so much about home education these days. And one of the, one of the themes that's running through is this idea that we're no longer teaching history. We're not, we're not teaching history. Don't tell me we're teaching history when we're leaving out the most important historical events. Don't tell me that's a history course when it skips over the important stuff. Are you following me? And um, so uh, so we're talking about Corona meltdowns because it's funny because I said this literally, what is it, two days ago? I said, I'm seeing a glimmer that this whole uh, um, kibash what do you call it? This whole mess that we're in is actually going to usher in an enormous win for Trump in November. Now, I don't have that on any good authority. It's just my I just had this glimpse that hit me. But then Victor Davis Hanson wrote this thing and and took the words right out of my mouth. He took the words right out of my mouth um, because he's saying that because people have behaved so abysmally during this uh, this whole debacle, that Trump is looking better and better. And in fact, um, was it uh, Dan Bongino tweeted this morning, I can't believe uh, he tweeted this expletive about, I can't, and I can't remember who it was, but it's a, it's a TV guy, tweeted that maybe the reason that Trump said that there were going to be 100,000 deaths is so that he could look better when they didn't get to 100,000 deaths. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That's the cynicism coming out of the left right now. Well, of course. Of course that's, that's going to happen. Oh, my husband just tweeted this. In a nation where liquor stores, marijuana dispensaries, and abortion clinics are deemed essential by government bureaucrats during the coronavirus outbreak, and church attendance is judged non-essential. We don't have to study long to diagnose the morbid condition of America. Man, he just won't shut up. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just saying. Um, that I'm saying that I completely drew myself off topic You know what's what's pretty bad for a radio show host is ADD. (laughs) It's very hard to follow what they're saying. Okay, back to Victor Davis Hanson. Come on, rein it in here. Okay. As the coronavirus outbreak begins to reach its zenith, it remains unclear whether the measures taken to stem its tide will prove sufficient, insufficient, or an overreaction. I personally believe it was an overreaction. Mainly because at some point you have to count the cost. And it seems to me that we reacted without counting the cost. We just saw the looming specter. And so we reacted. That's how it seems to me. I, I, and, and by the way, like that's not just hard and fast. It's not like I've done a whole ton of research and whatever. That's just my, let's say my knee jerk reaction to the whole thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm complying because I'll admit that I don't know everything, although I know most things. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kidding. Not really. Okay. Uh, second sentence in the Victor Davis Hanson article. <laughs> what is certain, however, is that a number of individuals and entities have behaved shamefully and demonstrated no capacity for leadership or usefulness In this moment, oh, no, they're useful. They're what we call useful idiots, right? Because they work for the left and they take up space and they use up oxygen and uh, they fuel the left fire. So he starts with Nancy Pelosi. She used to be uh, it was it was a myth, myth, but uh, but it was a seeming sort of assumption that she was a liberal voice of reason, that she, uh, she was trying to pre- prevent the polarization of the American left, um, that she was, you know, somebody skilled in uh, rhetoric and um, um, diplomacy, etc., blah, blah, blah. But he writes this, In retrospect, the public will remember how in fear and confusion she reversed course to spearhead impeachment outsourced the task in the House of Representatives to its most incompetent and perfidious members, Nadler and Schiff, and wasted weeks of the country's precious energy and time as it was on the cusp of an epidemic. And then she tried, of course, to weaponize the viral hysteria against, uh, against Trump and, and, and for the election. Only such an obsession explains why any sober politico would damn Trump as culpable in January for ignoring the viral dangers. While nearly a month after his necessary and controversial ban of January 31st, the one that stopped maybe 7,000 Chinese citizens entering California per day, some on the direct flights that were, com- that were supposed to be coming in from Wuhan, she was doing a photo op tour to urge the public... To get out and shop in San Francisco's crowded Chinatown. Quote, that's what we're trying to do here today is to say everything is fine here. That's her. I'm sorry. I can't do the denture thing. So it's not just politics or hypocrisy. That's what's known as insanity. You, you can't behind the, well, it's, it's just politics. No, it's insane. It's outright lies, but it's the left so so the idea i think I think he he sort of reversed it in a sense well, he he didn't reverse it, but he he put his thesis out that she's no longer she can no longer be considered uh just a a a good old gal from the former Democratic party who's trying to you know go along to get along or you know just um. Ride the wave or whatever. No, she's actually part of the enemy. She's she's literally part of the enemy of the United States. And I love what was it? Um, I can't remember who I had on the program in the in this past week, who said, you know, oh, I know who it was, David Horowitz, because I can hear I can hear his voice in my head. He said, you know, when when the country's at war, the country bands together, not this country, not this leftists right? And I think that that is the memory that will go into the November election if the Trump campaign can run it. And that's an if, right? Because I don't know all the different people working for Trump. I've seen the most amazing sort of um, connections of Fauci, the doctor who uh, was basically in charge of the the anti-COVID-19 campaign, right? sort of the, the medical doctor who who was consulted for all of the advice. Um, I don't know. I've seen him connected with Bill Gates, which means one world government, which means that the lockdown came too easy for him. You know what I mean? Like, like there are suspicions. And here's, here's, here's what I, I guess, hmm, here's what I need to explain, I suppose, is that your worldview informs every decision you make and it informs the way you look at facts it actually informs the way you perceive facts so if your worldview is one of no hope then facts can look very damning and dangerous and if you're a Pollyanna uh which I admit I'm I'm more of a Pollyanna um, and you, you have optimism and you have a great deal of hope in in the world, in humanity, in life in general, just, you know, optimism kind of thing. That will also color the way you look at the facts. And so I thought that we should be able probably to get back to work, at least in part, by Palm Sunday. But that didn't happen because I'm not running the show. Um. But maybe by the end of this week, I don't know, maybe I'm hoping at some point that Trump's going to say, "Okay, you know, we've peaked and it does look like we are peaking at this point. The last I heard, uh, New York had gone five days without a without an increase, without taking in more patients than hospitals were um, uh, releasing. So that's huge. Right. So if that, if, if, if that trend continues, that's a good trend. Maybe we can start to get back to work. Maybe, maybe the places that don't have peaks or that haven't had like a huge onslaught of the virus, maybe they can get back to work. How about that? How about some places go back to work and, or, or maybe, maybe half back to work so you run shifts but you only run half of the shift worker and restaurants can get half back to work right now they they they've got um we've got supplementary funds that are coming out to businesses in theory uh um why aren't we using those to get some people back to work so that some people can go out to dinner so that some people can keep the economy going in areas where there isn't like a huge, and by the way, my area is hit pretty bad supposedly because I'm in Florida. Apparently Florida's got it pretty bad. So here's my thing. I don't understand why. Oh, I see. I don't understand why Watson hasn't called. And I'm disappointed because he was supposed to call. Um, But he's not calling, so. All right, we're going to continue with Victor Davis Hanson. He goes on about Pelosi, says, When the Congress finally agreed to call a truce and pass a bipartisan, quote, rescue bill to stave off depression and deliver some relief to millions of unemployed, Pelosi single-handedly delayed passage, To insert irrelevant progressive treats into the authorization. Until, and get this, she was reprimanded by her own party to cease and desist. So now in the middle of an epidemic, she's now shifted her sights to talking about some kind of truth impeachment light commission to investigate Trump. And here's the thing. Bring it on. Do it. I beg her to do it. Not too loudly, because I don't want her to get on to the the ruse that she's being up, sort of up to. But um, bring it on. Because I'm sure that everybody would like to see the bizarre behavior of all the leftists when all of this was going on. And you know what? If anybody out there has a timeline of the various events... With regards to, okay, Trump instituted the travel ban January 31st, right? Who declared that there was nothing to worry about? Who? This is so funny. We were talking in the kitchen. And I said, yeah, who declared there was nothing to worry about with the coronavirus back in, I don't know if it was December or it was early, early days, right? Which sort of led us, uh, led us uh, wayward, astray if you will, in paying attention to it. Because WHO, the World Health Organization, declared that it wasn't an issue to even, you know, don't worry about that one. We got that covered. It's fine. And my son says, who did? And I said, who? And he said, who? And I said, who? Yes, who? (laughs) Sorry. And then the, the director of WHO Tweeted to Trump, you know, if you don't want more body bags, don't politicize this. And I tweeted back. I said, uh, too late. You politicized it when you refused to acknowledge that China had a deadly virus and that they were doing nothing about it and allowing it to spread. You who? <laughs> you who? All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, right. So I so we said bring it on because uh, we've got all the empty January braggadocio of uh, Andrew Cuomo and Joe Biden's smearing of the Trump tra- travel ban as xenophobic and all of that. We've got all of that. So let's put together a timeline so that people can see. And you know what would be great is questions from the press and the dates that they occurred. Why did why do you insist on calling it? the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. Don't you think that that that, that, uh, sets a bad racism, you know? And Trump goes, it's not racist. I call it the Chinese virus because it came from China. (laughs) And so he writes this, which is kind of what I've been saying. Does she Pelosi, have any idea that by forcing Trump to own the virus, which is what she's trying to do, oh, this whole virus, this is your fault, Right even though she worked actively on behalf of the virus. And it really boils down to that. She worked actively on behalf of the virus. Does she have any idea that by forcing Trump to own the virus, predicated on the notion of trusting in bleak but widely criticized Armageddon modeling, she is greenlighting Trump to take credit for the response, especially if coronavirus proves in the end comparable to the 60 million infected, roughly 1 million hospitalized to the comparable basically to the influ- to the prior influenza epidemics. Right? Then he gets to take credit because it 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 should be a lot more. And that's Fauci. So Fauci came out and said it could be 100 to 250,000 deaths that we're looking at. And that would overwhelm, right? That's that's when our healthcare system is completely overwhelmed. But the, but so far, we're seeing we're seeing some people being overwhelmed. We're seeing some, I suppose some institutions that are somewhat overwhelmed. and it's not easy. and there are a lot of heroes out there who are sacrificing themselves. They're sacrificing absolutely. But with any luck, we won't we won't approach a hundred thousand. And so I can't remember who the pundit was who said, I bet Trump predicted the, the 100,000 deaths so that he could run a victory lap when it wasn't nearly that. Yeah, that's what happened. What are you, crazy? China lied so that Trump could run a victory lap. <laughs> Come on, folks. Come on. The second loser in all of this is the media. So VDH writes, watching the media deal with the daily White House briefings reminds the country that we have never had journalism of this low character before. Not in the acrimony over the founding, not in the furor during the Civil War, not even in the age of yellow journalism at the turn of the 20th century. Reporters do not wish to transmit knowledge to the public that might aid in confronting the virus. This is what's so astonishing. They don't even want to clarify murky statements from public officials to ensure Americans know exactly what the government wants them to do. Instead, they fixate on two agendas. One, goad the president into saying something, you know, sloppy, repeatedly suggest that in reacting to the virus, he's an error or he's cruel and heartless or he's dangerous. None of, none of which really resound to how to keep people safe, right? There's, a, there's an obsession with the gotcha question. They, they call him a xenophobe and a racist for issuing the travel ban against China because it was contrary to the earlier advice of who, who, yes, who, <laughs> World Health Organization, and the, center, the Centers for Disease, the CDC, which totally fell down on its job. Contrary to the media, Contrary to the democratic hierarchy. And then they silently support it. They use Dr. Chinese data, the propaganda that comes directly from the Communist Party, to convince Americans that China, a nation that lied about the origins, lied about the spread of the virus, lied about the nature of the virus, and allowed the virus, knowingly allowed the virus, knowingly allowed the virus to infect other countries and they're trying to convince the american public that china's doing a much better job in containing and treating people with the virus than even here they he, he writes even the media cannot keep straight their own anti-trump gymnastics if uh, if trump supports hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin which by the way is um, in trials seems to be, uh, very effective. We don't know if it's the if it's the, the the final like this is the final cure or not, but it does seem to be very effective. Um. Then. Then they're against it. If Trump supports it, they're against it. In fact, I think Cuomo came out against it, right? So there's um. Let me see if I can tee this up. There's a uh, Andrew Bostom who comes on this program uh, periodically. Went on the um, the Jerome Corsi show. Uh, let's introduce and Dr. talked, talked Bostom as well. Uh,
0: get him into the.
1: Sorry, here we go. Talked about the the effects of the um, <clears throat> of the drug, and Bostom goes through and says, "You know, there's there's lots of evidence." That it's uh, that it's effective. There are, there are studies that that are not blind studies. There are studies that don't have the control group. There is one study that was done with a control group that also proved that hydroxychloroquine chloroquine and azithromycin was quite effective. Um, and and more importantly, that it is not harmful, because that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about all of the prophylactic meaning preventative use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in all of these countries that have a high incidence of malaria. And so you, you just take these drugs as a preventative for getting malaria. But if they also prove, so here's the thing, give them the drugs. If they're not harmful, try it. Why are we dragging our feet and trying a drug that could potentially, that seems to be anecdotally, potentially very helpful, even if it's only helpful in 50% of the people. The drug has already proven that it's not harmful to anybody. Throw it out there and let them try. And he raises an interesting point. So I'm going to play this. Let's so see.
0: that's that, That's a pretty good track record for patients who, again, they're not with advanced disease, but there was a concern enough about them that they were hospitalized. Um, so again, I, I think we're triaging the much more severe patients for hospitalization at this point in this country, but but regardless, it's a milder form of the disease. But the ones that wound up progressing were the high risk patients, elderly, um, but still only twenty out of a thousand. I think that's a pretty good record, and, and he's really finding no significant toxicity as as he had expected, given his vast experience with with uh, using hydroxychloroquine. So I, I think we're beyond poo-pooing this. I think the model that India Im, Im, employing, um, is employing that Dr. Graves outlined is a very, very logical model, and it really extends probably to India's own experience with malaria prophylaxis. Uh, so I, I, this, this is all starting to make a, a lot more sense. What doesn't make sense, and I did want to point this out to you, Dr. Corsi, is you know in, in 2013 – there was a USA today story and Dr Fauci was gushing about this purely laboratory uh, you know cell culture experiment done by the National Institute of Allergy uh, and, and Infectious Disease maybe that's why he was so gung ho about it it was a purely cell culture study using two highly toxic antiviral drugs, ribavirin and interferon alpha. And in cell culture, at the time, if you recall, there was the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was also a coronavirus. In cell culture, this toxic combination of drugs appeared to reduce viral replication that he's gushing about, you know, fast forward seven years later, you've got all this clinical evidence in human beings, including a small placebo controlled trial and that he's very dismissive. Of. It, it makes absolutely no sense to me uh, intellectually and morally.
1: Okay. So I, uh, I presume that you understand what he's getting at, but just to, just to sum up Fauci's, struggling to admit that we should use two drugs that have proven over decades to be completely not harmful, completely, ben- not banal, what's the word, benign to humans, except to prevent malaria, right? He, he is unwilling that we should try those drugs to help people who currently have a disease for which we have no other cure, but in this other trial that happened, Dr. Bostom dug up this idea that Fauci was all in favor of something that actually was highly toxic, toxic, toxic. And yet he was in favor of trying it in this other uh, situation. And that's where I start to wonder, what's his worldview? What is informing his Ideas about what's right and wrong, about uh, the way to move forward, about the results that he's looking for. You see, there's, there's a worldview that looks for a certain result, and there's a worldview that takes the, uh, that takes the idea that we have to do what's right. And there are two different worldviews. One is focused entirely on results. Regardless of right and wrong, and that's the communist worldview. So, um, so when Trump, when Trump tax to the to the right, the media tax to the left. When Trump tax to the left, the media tra- tax to the right. Uh, when when he tax towards hydroxychloroquine, the media hates it. When he says, "Well, maybe not," the media says, "Why not? That's a great drug." You see what I'm saying? And he can't win. So, um, and that's the point that uh, VDH is making in this article. The White House press obsesses over a second agenda, too. It must always prove that previously respected figures like Fauci and Burks, once embraced by the liberal media in their pre-Trump days, are either in revolt against their doltish boss or brainwashed into obsequious enslavement to their president. Often the media advances both antithetical scenarios nearly simultaneously. Right. It's, this, is, this harkens back to uh, Bush lied, people died. Um, and the, the whole idea, and I love this meme, that, that it wasn't a meme, it wasn't a time for memes at that point, but um, this would have made a huge meme at the time. Uh, the meme of uh, President Bush is so stupid. He's so, he's just so stupid. And then we got into the Iraq war because he fooled everybody. Because he's hes a brilliant mastermind who fools people into agreeing to go to war. And you're like, but I thought he was stupid. So the stupid idiot fooled everybody? How did that happen? <laughs> Excuse me, what? I'm just checking. It sounds weird to me. All right, so... Uh, so we've got Pelosi. We've got the media. Right. All of these people are being and it's good, actually, they're 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 really losing their. Um, what's the word I'm looking for Their Their. Their character, not that they had character, but they're losing uh, uh, traction, I think, with the American public, at least I hope so. And then we have Joe Biden. The virus shutdown was first seen as providing a necessary respite for the 77-year-old former vice president to go home, rest up, and recuperate after an exhausting summer, fall, and winter of campaigning. An ordeal that supposedly had explained his increasing flubs and gaffes. Indeed, when the shutdown first began, arrested Biden coming off a well-enough debate performance against Senator Bernie Sanders was to broadcast daily out of his home in informal fireside chat fashion. Good old Joe from Scranton would offer here's the deal homilies and point one, point two, point something or other commentaries on the virus and Trump's inadequate response to it. But what followed was an ungodly disaster. As if the problem all along never was Biden's weariness, but Biden himself. See, that's the problem when you go all homey. Like this is the real me, Jenny from the block, right? <laughs> Except that you you can't you can't help uh, hold that because you're Joe Biden. <laughs> Arrested Biden's botched commentaries not only only uh, only convinced observers that a president Biden at this moment would be a veritable catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. Biden seemed more confused from his home than he was on the campaign stump. He tried reading from a teleprompter script and then talking extempore. And then both and found he could do neither. Do you remember that video of him trying to talk from the teleprompter? And they weren't moving the teleprompter fast enough. They weren't scrolling it fast enough. So he puts his arm down. But the problem is you can, the the framing, nobody told him what the framing was. So he thought the framing was like chest up, like mid chest up, but it wasn't. It was down and included the podium. So the podium framed him chest up. But the side of the po- the podium itself, the front, and uh, on either side of the podium was visible. So he puts his his right arm out to the side of the podium because he thinks that that you can't see his hand on on camera. And for some reason, they did this live. Like whoever's running his show is an idiot, and these people want to run the country because let's make no mistake: it's not Joe Biden who's going to be running the country if he get if he becomes president. I love this. Um, waters on the five the other day said uh this after three months biden's out and it's vice president who did he put he he put forward amy klobuchar or um oh my gosh the actress Alyssa milano would be running the would be running the show then it was pretty funny it's a terrible a, a terrible visual image a terrible image and so Biden himself, with that hand with that hand trying to get them to run the teleprompter because he had no idea what to say next, and when you start to see the genuine individual who's an idiot and doesn't know what to say next, right? I mean, if you look at here's the thing, if you want to compare, and we actually somebody ought to do this, I don't have time to do these things. somebody should do well, maybe they shouldn't. this is just coming out of my little brain, but um. Oh, God. Rubio. Rubio giving the response to the State of the Union when he needed a glass of water. And he and he he kept his eyes on the camera because you're taught to keep your eyes on the camera when you do this kind of thing. And he leans out of frame, basically, while his eyes are on the camera. It looked very odd, right, to grab some water because his mouth was so dry. Because nerves and everything. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And anybody with half a heart would go, oh, my gosh, the poor guy. Yeah, that looked really bad, but totally understandable, right? Compare that to Joe Biden, not knowing what to say next. Do you see what I'm saying? But Rubio's career is finished, and Biden's gaffes are buried, so that he's still pure Uncle Joe. But I got to tell you, every time he's Uncle Joe, I just think of Joseph Stalin. Not that, not that Biden has done the horrible things that Joe Stalin has done. It's just that they have the same moniker. I can't help it. It's not my fault. They picked the names. They're the ones, right? And so Biden, so he blasts Trump as a xenophobe and a racist for the travel ban. And then he finally conceded that he agreed with the ban. His staff claimed that the, that the racist or xenophobic allegations were in connection to Trump's use of China, Chinese virus. But um, Trump only used that terminology after Biden's smear. You see, they, 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 they fudge history. So now Biden is apparently trying to argue that Trump should have issued the once racist and xenophobic ban even earlier. And, uh, his, and, and he's saying that he would have issued it earlier, even though he criticized it at the time. Well, the American public are going to see through that, don't you think? The truth is that Biden can't find much to disagree with. In fact, he was on he was on some show. Was he the guy who was asked if Trump had uh, blood on his hands and he couldn't come to he couldn't come to say that. He disagreed with that. Like like he can't he 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 seriously can't find anything to disagree with Trump on. And especially because most Democrats were still playing down the severity of the virus, as was Anthony Fauci himself in January. And this is why I doubt Fauci. I doubt him because I don't understand what his worldview is. I don't know what his worldview is. And I need to know that to understand the genesis of his opinions. And I'm running out of time. Okay, well, that's it then. I've I've overtalked myself today. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Go to samsorbo.com to check out my videos. Give me some likes. I need some likes on my homeschool videos, okay? And uh, thank you so much for all the comments that I'm getting. I really appreciate them. This is the Sam Sorbo Show on mojo50.com. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you can unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current as a 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing, lender, license in all 50 states. Anomalous consumer access. Not over 3030. Call 800 1233 for disclosures and cost
2: information.